Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be speaking with Dr. Trey Herr and Simon Handler. They are the director and assistant director, respectively, of the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. Along with some folks at MIT Lincoln Labs and Boston Cybernetics, they recently released a paper called, How Do You Fix a Flying Computer? Seeking Resilience in Software-Intensive Mission Systems. And we're here to talk about that today. So Trey, Simon, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having us. So I wanted to introduce mission resilience by way of the example that you guys did. So your paper started off with a discussion of the F-35 ALICE system, and then it ended with a discussion of the CIA's Corona satellite program. So can you just give us what are the lessons for mission resilience that you were really getting out of each of those cases? That's a great question for us. I think it was interesting to see how to start a story like this. It's such a it's a big, meaty topic, and we're talking about people process and technology, what are the challenges for us is not only getting into what is a massively complex environment with just the hardware and the software and the actual systems in place, but also really trying to weave that together with incentives and this idea of people making policy and organizational behaviors. What we wanted to do was to start with something to frame the narrative. And as we looked at the landscape for mission systems and and complex mission systems at that, where there's a strong sort of technology component, the F-35 is a big part of that discussion right now. It's difficult to really survey the defense landscape and not see that as one of the major parts of that environment, not just for the U.S., but I think importantly for us at the Atlantic Council, also for allies. And one of the things that jumps out of this multi-generational acquisitions process, I'll leave others to say boondoggle, is the ALICE system. It is the sort of software-driven intelligence behind, or at least model for intelligence behind the operating model that the F-35 embraces. So thinking about resilience, the process of developing ALICE for us exposes two things uh, that became really important as we went through this. First, the intensity with which that development effort has pursued a specific defined outcome, as opposed to the kind of rapid experimentation and messy attempts to satisfy a user community that we profile in the report, was us was emblematic of an older model of thinking and this sort of more brittle model of thinking in defense acquisitions for technology. And so it was a good showpiece to really say, hey, what is it about this? And I should say our verdict is not that it's not working well. It's the U.S. government's verdict, right, and entirely replacing the system and going to a new one um, with Odin. So I think that was a significant virtue for us is not to cast judgment on it, but really just to support what we'd seen um, from DOD and the policy community. So the first was really pushing for a defined set of requirements versus trying to experiment to what the user needed and what the user wanted and being tightly joined with the user community. But the second is, I think, as we as we develop in the paper, these principles of resilience, excuse me, admission resilience and the practices associated with them, there's a really significant emphasis over and over again on learning um, and on understanding not just what works, but what doesn't and feeding that, really driving a feedback loop for that back into your development process. And for us, I think Alice was, because, it, because there appeared to be some really significant parallels between Alice and Odin, that there was the same vendor, that it was working under the same kind of contract, that there was this, and again, you know, this repetitive model, that was something we wanted to call out because it's one of the real significant dangers that's been observed in defense acquisitions for technology is 
the failure to learn the lessons of what does not work is incredibly costly. To make those same mistakes over and over again is the kind of unnecessary but crippling cost that no entity can afford, regardless of how large your defense budget is, and certainly not the United States in a time where there's going to be significant downward pressure on that budget. So those two pieces, first was this willingness to tolerate failure and experiment, but the second was that what seemed like a limit on the learning process and a, and a failure to learn effectively. Alice kind of defined some of the don't be like this model for us for resilience. I'll let Simon talk about Corona because I think it's in some ways, despite being much older and a much more significant technical challenge to really make an effective photo reconnaissance platform, it's it, it, it exhibits a lot more of these core mission resilience principles. Yeah, sure. So after we talked about the F-35, which like Trey said, is incredibly dependent on software, we then spent the bulk of the paper outlining four principles of resilience, which we identified as embracing failure, improve your speed, always be learning, and manage complexities and trade-offs. With these principles, we outlined some recommendations and then put forth the corona example at the end as the exemplar uh, of resilience. So like Trey said, Project Corona was a joint CIA and Air Force project, which launched the first spy satellites during the Cold War. And while it was a much different type of technology, we saw it as a project that really encapsulated our four principles of resilience. It was plagued by a ton of problems. And every time they tried to solve old problems, new problems would surface in the new solutions. But this constant embrace of learning and, and failure was really critical to growing the program, building that adaptive capacity that we emphasized so much through the paper. And though it had its problems, the commitment to a continuous improvement made the program an overall success and had some great results for the U.S. strategically in the Cold War. Yeah. It, when you're describing the corona, it makes me think about that program actually started before the modern acquisition system. So it got started in the late 50s. So it already got off on a foot that was different than a paradigm that you would see today. And I think it more closely related to what you guys had, the three pillars of mission resilience, robustness, responsiveness, adaptability. And I think what you guys were just saying there, a lot of it revolves around that. But what it doesn't revolve around is a defined outcome. And I think it really comes back to this static versus dynamic view of systems. And what we have today, the model that the F-35 grew up under, but the corona did not, was that you're supposed to define your all of your outcomes right up front. And then the measure of success is, how do you execute compared to that plan? And there, that's nowhere in your definition of mission re resilience. So did you guys want to just comment on that? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head, Eric. When we're talking about, it's not that there's no outcome, right? We're not asking DOD to start spending hundreds of billions of dollars on a journey without a, a destination. It's It would be impractical at best. I think what we're really doing is to echo a couple of voices. Former Assistant Secretary Dr. Will Roper is one that jumps out. Helen Lord has also made some serious efforts in this space, trying to echo those voices and saying the way that we're acquiring systems right now where all that I care about is the satisfaction of a requirement sheet, irrespective of cost, irrespective of usability, irrespective of security and flexibility down the line, is not a good model. And it's a, it's a somewhat hyperbolic way of describing the current acquisitions process, but unfortunately it's not as far off as it should be with a lot of the systems that we're talking about. And so I think for this, having a defined end state is important, but being willing to update that, and most importantly, 
embracing users as a part of the design process so that what's driving this is how it's going to be employed, not what a committee at some point 10 years ago decided was the right combination of specifications and requirements is what makes this both harder, but in the long term, much more useful. And so I think the a takeaway for us and one of the, the way that we frame the recommendations is there is a, at the moment, a tendency towards risk avoidance and risk minimization in a lot of the acquisitions process that is there over years of experience, layered oversight and risk mitigation. And the product, unfortunately, is something that really isn't very satisfactory from the standpoint of the technology that's produced for the people that have to use it or the process that it creates. So again, I think these changes are, to your point, trying to form something that is trying to produce technologies and mission systems that are more useful more flexible over time and, and engage with the needs that requirements set or that end state is trying to realize, not ignores it. Yeah, sometimes I feel the Department of Defense is all about minimizing risk rather than resolving risk. And I think there's just two very different aspects to that, because when you resolve risk, you actually have to go out, speculate into the unknown, and then get back into that trial and error. And then there's that balance of, as you were saying, I, don't, I can't just start out with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars for this program with no end state in mind. So where's that proper mix and how do we get that? When you guys talk about mission resilience, I want you to kind of break this down because, you know, how much of that is really about technology implementation and how much of that is really organizational or cultural? Yeah, sure. So this was a big point of emphasis in the report. We think that it's important to understand a system as more than just the technology. It's uh, built on three elements, which are people, the organizational processes, and the technology. And we really stressed the people and the organizational processes in this, especially the people, because they set the missions, design the technologies, and they can improve the organizational processes. I think all three are really critical, but we addressed all of them as equals in this report. Yeah, I'll just I'll add to that quickly. I think that the reason organization ends up rising above this is really just to say that the devices that you produce, so the systems that you're engineering, they're important, but they are shaped by the people and they're shaped by the incentives around them. And for somebody, for an organization the size of DOD, there's a lot of policymakers making good faith efforts to try and address these sorts of systemic deficiencies in the acquisitions pipeline for this sort of technology intensive mission systems that do not have a realistic hope of actually touching the hardware and the software itself. That's okay. There's no organization that big that's going to be able to have everyone playing at every level of abstraction at the same time, but they have a huge role to play in shaping the kind of risk tolerance that these program managers are, for example, allowed to embrace in providing the kind of financial pathway lifeline in some in some cases and just expectation management for offices that are trying to work with new technologies or work with different vendors and contractors that allows them to take risks or embrace some of these cultural changes that we're talking about. So I think there's it's not that technology is not important. It's a big part of the conversation, but there's a lot of people working in the space that have to be part of these sorts of changes that are not going to be tinkering and, and hammering on things themselves. I often hear like from the commercial sector, they often talk about people in teams. And then if you get those people in organizations, then the technology follows from that. And it seems to be some of the principle that you guys were also talking about in mission resilience, as opposed to in the Department of Defense, it's you set up the program and then the organization, you get like a program office, you bring the people together, and then they go execute that. And I think that potentially when you stovepipe it that way, and then that creates a different set of incentives rather than if you have an organization and kind of define how do they interact with other organizations? What are those themes and responsibilities? And, and I guess your anticipations of what they'll be doing. 
the expectation, the expe I think you, again, I think you have it right. The expectation shaping is a big piece of this. Are you empowered to take a risk? Are you empowered to change? Are you empowered to try something new? Or are you being given the very clear message that avoiding failure at all costs is your purpose? And we think about the rotational dynamics of some of these offices, not screwing up for the 18 months you're on the job, that you own the contract, that you own the project, creates a really averse atmosphere to this kind of change that we're talking about. So I, I think you're right. And again, it works at multiple levels, right? It's almost like that command culture question. Yeah. One, one of, of your report was also that, I guess, when you have people that are making these decisions and they can get into, they have more discretion, they can get into their own agile kind of feedback loops. And people often talk about, oh, it's all about speed. Like software is about speed, delivering, learning, improving, and not just getting like the one big bang thing. But many folks, I think like the traditional way of looking at it, they'll be like, okay, I hear about you speeding up the technology process, but really I've seen this before. People have said, let's do it faster. And it usually means cutting corners, taking risks in either cost or performance. So when you guys talk about speed and how that kind of balances out with the uh, mission resilience, are you breaking the iron triangle or is there something else going on? So I think you'll note in our report, we titled the principle, improve your speed. It's not just go faster. So we're not suggesting cutting corners, but more cutting out the bottlenecks. We think there are a number of ways to do this, including measuring and analyzing everything to ID those points of inefficiency. And one of the points uh, of emphasis here that we made is prioritizing the continuous delivery and feedback and learning. We gave the example of Kessel Run, which has that objective to deliver software anytime, anywhere. And they spread up the process of, of developing and delivering their software to a point, I think it was 24 times faster than the rest of the Air Force was able to do it. So the faster the organization can patch and fix the bugs and, and detect vulnerabilities are really important to resilience. And then other ways of improving the speed without cutting corners include automation and cutting out those just really labor-intensive and repetitive tasks so that you can free up important personnel for other tasks. We're revolving a little bit around, I guess, some of what I would almost call like Project Calvinism because it seems like we often think, and I'll call it Project Calvinism because I think a lot of people often have the view of it being there's some kind of predestined view of what the cost, the schedule, and the performance is. And we just don't have a perfect view into what that is, but it's out there. And I think when you try to predict that, you actually are creating some of the the vulnerabilities in your mission because you can't predict everything perfectly. So an error in the plan becomes a vulnerability. And then it's really hard to close that loop because you don't have those predefined feedbacks. So as opposed to just like stumbling through, but then closing these things rapidly when you find them, do you believe in Project Calvinism? Because if you can predict it, then that makes a whole ton of sense. But if you can't, then you're really like you're building in all these vulnerabilities that will be exploited by an adversary. It's interesting. And I think one example recommendation that we made in here was embrace the chaos monkey. The chaos engineering is a discipline invented, or I should say invented, really captured by Netflix as a way of road testing production systems and subjecting them to a variety of stresses that they could see at the outer likely bands of an operational environment as a way not just to try and understand how the systems would perform, but also how they would fail. 
and in how far of a degraded state could they function over time. So it was a very intentional effort to break and not in a test environment to, to play with live ammunition. And that, I think, is a little bit of a way you know, of addressing the question, which is what we're talking about in some ways is not to try and ignore the natural human instinct and the substantially natural organizational instinct to try and know the unknown and to manage and minimize risk. What we are suggesting is that a lot of the existing mechanisms perceive or assume a knowability to a lot of this uncertainty, which is false. And, and we could take various theological positions on that. But I think really, realistically, we just can't know a lot of the things that we'd like to, especially about a 10 or 15 year pipeline for high technology systems development. Given the pay, you think, look at 10 years ago, the state of the iPhone, the state of mainframe computing, the state of cloud computing, it, it's, it pales in comparison to what we have today. And I think is on the edge of any forecast or foresight experts likely chart of, of what's coming next. So really what this is to try to build systems that in some ways are more humble about their own shortcomings and about our own very human shortcomings and the ability to project forward what's happening with them. And really just to say, enable this connective tissue in these organizations to function more effectively. So back to that notion of chaos engineering, expose to your own organization problems that they are ready and willing to manage, that they are capable in some ways of managing if they have the ability to see them coming down the road. Don't ask them to put on a magic hat and predict the future give them the opportunity to see that system operating under unique failure modes and and unusual conditions as a way of learning about not only your own organization, but actually the system that you're trying to maintain. So I think a lot of it is, it's interesting, we could do a, uh, maybe do a philosophical version of this paper, but a lot of this is acknowledging our lack of control and the unknown in the universe around us, and really just trying to sharpen our own tools to address that if and when we're confronted with it in the real world, rather than trying to engineer it or spreadsheet it out of existence. Yeah, I love that uh, you guys had a great little bit in there about chaos engineering and, and the chaos monkey that Netflix uses. And potentially for the DoD, it needs a little rebranding because that might be scary for people. Maybe like mission resilience testing or something boring so that they'll do it. <laughs> I guess when I think about like the testing, does that just involve, it seems like a completely new paradigm for testing systems because what we have in the Department of Defense with the test and evaluation master plan, you're basically supposed to say before I develop it, how I'm going to test this thing. And then, of course, like all the incentives are to make sure the thing tests that way, but then you're not looking at all the other ways that the, the thing could have been tested. So it almost seems then there's also this movement to like automated testing of code. And that's great, but it also just seems like a more automated way of the old style as opposed to this chaos engineering, which really requires some kind of creativity almost in terms of poking at something in different ways and seeing where it stands up or doesn't stand up. I think it's twofold. The first is systems in toto, right? So this decomposed version of testing, you mentioned dynamic analysis for code, static analysis for code, right? It's one thing to take a product and evaluate it on the bench when I can segment it to its various parts and control their inputs and outputs and the functionality relatively cleanly. Part of the philosophy of chaos engineering is to test on production systems for two reasons. First, if you are not willing to subject it to a test, why are you willing to put it out there into the world and have it function with real users? But second, a lot of the a lot of the challenge that I think the notion of mission resilience is trying to address is not the failure of isolated components. I, if I receive FIP certification for a well-known cryptographic algorithm, I can have some confidence that the design of that algorithm matches what is expected to be best practice in, in cryptographic design. My issue is if that algorithm is placed into a sequence of modules 
where the data that it's passed is not secured well and whatever is called from the result is handled in an improper fashion. And so the attacker is able to take advantage of the system rather than just the magic collection of X, excuse me, of S boxes. And so for this, it's the, the edges between modules. It's the complexity that emerges from a large and, and multifaceted system that we're trying to surface and address. And again, when we say adaptive, I mean, avoiding brittleness, right? It's about making the connectivity between those systems greater such that they can tolerate something bad happening or something unexpected happening between them. But really it's the edges between those links that I think in some ways are most important and we're trying to expose with that. Simon, did you have anything to chime in? Trey pretty much hit most of it, but we've seen this work well for Netflix in the private sector. There was a big AWS outage at one of their data centers in a few years ago, I think it was in 2015, and Netflix didn't experience much, if any, service-related interruptions because they had gone through this chaos engineering process, and they took those lessons to, to overcome that outage. I think by adapting the practice, the DoD could start to learn more about their systems, brace for those disruptions, and then become uh, more resilient as a result. So I want to move on to one of your next recommendations, which was actually something that I never thought about, but was pretty interesting. You guys said that, of course, the government's very serious about how it does classification, and it thinks that by classifying in the way that it does, it's actually securing the information. But what you guys seem to be arguing is that when you create all these rules around classification, it actually drives cost and complexity into information systems and actually compound some of the vulnerabilities rather than closing them. So how do you see classification in the 21st century? Or would you push back on that characterization? <laughs> yeah, we think that uh, classification and confidentiality is really important when we're dealing with advanced technologies and national security. But overall, the DOD can do a, a far better job of planning for the loss of its secrets. It needs to therefore limit its secrets where possible because determined adversaries are going to be able to overcome defenses eventually. It needs to, DOD needs to accept that plan for losing things like credentials and, and designs and plans and so on. I'll just say, I think the big thing here again is that when we talk about the levels of secrecy in the classification system and the, the grave significant right, harm to national security that merits those we're forgetting the enemy's foreign and domestic model. And the project, which is too complex to manage well, where classification leak occurs simply because of a mismanaged exchange of information between two compartments or two levels of secrecy, is as significant as for an adversary getting into a safe, rifling through things and pulling something out. So I think part of what we're suggesting with limit secrecy isn't that classification is bad per se, or that the threats being supposed out there against which classification is meant to protect aren't true but just that we need to recognize that these systems are not simple, the people are a huge factor, and that we can help ourselves by minimizing the risk um, of these sorts of problems happening and speeding our own ability to develop these systems by addressing these kinds of limitations. So on a related front here, your paper asks for resilience performance metrics to be put on contract. So we already have this big thing called the cybersecurity maturation model of the CMMC, can you guys just at a high level describe what distinguishes your metrics from CMMC or how do they complement each other? Yeah, it's a good question. CMMC, I think, is shooting at a different target, which is to say it's the maturity and really the risk uh, management sophistication of vendors. 
this is thinking much more about program management and, and less the sort of hygiene and integrity of the vendor itself. But I'll say, I think that for us, and as has been said by many others, you, know, you manage what you measure. And so providing metrics for a concept like uh, DevSecOps, for example, is the only real way to hold a vendor accountable for actually adhering to that performance philosophy. So it can be an abstruse thing at the wrong times. And what we don't want to do is see, as we have, I think in some cases, these kinds of concepts which have firm roots in the engineering space that have been applied well by certain private sector and academic entities to really interesting ends, to have those turn around and used as branding by existing components of the defense industrial base as a way to overcome access to a contract rather than really drive change in their own engineering process and project management. So in that sense, metrics is crucial, not just for what it is that we um, see out of the process in terms of efficacy or output, but just that the process actually does implement these recommendations, that we actually do see these kinds of cultural shifts. Are those metrics like the DORA metrics for DevSecOps, or are they looking to see that you have DevSecOps type of, I guess, process as opposed to CMMC, which is more just like cybersecurity rules? Yeah, CMMC is really focused on maturity and it's trying to describe the character of your performance. I think this is going a, a step a step in a similar path, but in a different direction, uh, which is to say, describe the philosophy of engineering, right? Show us that you're actually embracing these techniques, which we believe are important and valuable to our process, but that we want to see more than lip service to. We want to see actual material changes to, and those metrics are one way to try and address that, an imperfect one for sure. And again, as we you know go through the recommendations, one of the things that we call out there, I think that we ask for is this notion of a center of excellence within DOD or a center of expertise the summer. And it one of its purposes, one of its reasons that we have it there is there are not clear metrics for some of these. I talk about continuous integration, continuous development in the paper. One measure of CICD adherence is the number of commits you do on a code base in a day. That's interesting, but it's pretty raw. And when we talk about different kinds of programs, different levels of sophistication, that may not be a great measure. And so part of what we're looking for that, that center of excellence to do is to actually define ways to measure some of these constructs. And, and that's leveraging work being done in academia and in industry and in the FFRDC and national lab community. It's not for them to be the only source of truth, but just to give an entity the remit to really start to pull these concepts together and generate some kind of measurable output for them. So you're saying, have there been some complaints from either government or other companies saying that, hey, these companies... They say they're they're implementing DevSecOps, but really it's just like lipstick and it's just the same old agile scrum fall or whatever it is. Yes, I think you. there was an explosion of agile branding at a certain point a couple of years ago that from the outside probably wasn't, uh, didn't seem likely to have been matched by the significant change in organizational structure and philosophy that it would need to have been accompanied by. And I think we've absolutely heard complaints from some of our partners that they see a lot of discussion and a lot of phrasing and a lot of framing and then things are delivered to them in a quarterly waterfall and nobody ever talks to the user. About as unagile as it gets. Yeah, I guess you, you put the DevSecOps in the proposal and then if you win, then you consider whether you're actually going to implement it. But by that, that time, it's we got to get going <laughs> and, and we've already been doing it this way. Yeah, and we'll cost it and then bill it as a, a change order. But so for this, this center of excellence, there's always new offices coming here, there and everywhere. What is required to give it the status it needs to succeed, or at least the influence that it, these metrics are adopted by the program offices or whatever it is? Yeah, no, I think it's right. It's the same thing that we've seen work for DDS, but I think it also to some extent for ATF, which were digital and transformation focused entities that were trying to provide support for 
the transition, not necessarily do the heavy duty systems engineering in lieu of program offices. I think the three keys, one is access to um, the secretary's office, access to, to OSD, and in some cases to the secretary directly. And a lot of that is going to fall to Dr. Kathleen Hicks, who has was familiar with some of these concepts and has done some tremendous work while she was out in CSIS. But as she is organizing the department and really structuring the way that she wants it to function, it's always challenging to give any entity exceptional access to the principal. And I think it'll be and it'll be an opportunity for her to make some determination about how much influence this sort of function should have. But I think especially in its early days, to move mountains and really get the kind of buy-in you need access to the secretary's office is really crucial. The second is not trying to solve the problem in DOD. A lot of these concepts exist already in the public domain. They're being pushed on and developed by industry. They're, they're coming from academia. The center of excellence does not need to be a high side bubble for this work to get relabeled and rebranded under a TS label. And so I think an important, almost crucial aspect of this is that the center is kept relatively small and it's dependent on these external entities to feed it information and to do a lot of this work, which is to say, it's not a center of research. It's a center of pulling together research and trying to distill best practices. So it's the last 20% of that pipeline. So keeping it small is, is crucial as well. But I think the last thing really is just kicking it seriously. Appropriated budget dollars for the office, a Senate confirmed position, giving it the status internal to the large warring family that is DOD is, is important both for its survival, but also for its longevity. It's a reasonable uh, response for a program not to take new offices, new appointees seriously until they've been around for a few years, because there is this kind of constant churn of change agents come in and they don't change and then they're de-agented and they're out. Um, and so for this, it's its ability to convey that it's going to be a part of the, the conceptual architecture for program development and for requirements creation in the, in the DOD for some time to come, I think will help both determine its success, but also drive a lot of credibility. But potentially not an, another member on the JROC. That wouldn't be our first place for it. No, again, <laughs> okay, I think good. laughingly, yes, but also realistically, this should be an entity that has the ability to drive this philosophy of change that would probably be putting it more in a position of supporting the existing model. So before we're wrapping up here, I, I, wanna, I want you guys to talk a little bit about this battle lab idea that you guys uh, introduced in the paper. So can you just uh, introduce what that is and what your vision is for it? Yeah, happy to take a swing and then, and then turn over to Simon for any thoughts on it. The battle lab is intended to channel two things. First is to take advantage of this SOSITE program that DARPA runs, which is got to focus already on pulling in service member insight on uh, programs and opportunities and repurposing, importantly, of existing weapon systems. The Battle Lab's intent is to try and develop an opportunity for staff grade officers and field grade officers, about 120 we suggest in a given year, to really think through what it is that existing assets and platforms can do, what it is that they're, what, what missions exist for them now, and where they could be reapplied or re-engineered in future. Part of the reason for this is, as we were looking at, through the notion of agile development and continuous integration, continuous deployment, there's a really significant emphasis on user feedback. But the DOD has to develop these systems, not just for what one pocket of users wants, and that's to overcome service parochialism as much as it is to stay ahead of complex and compound threat environment. It's also trying to develop these systems to achieve um, broader doctrinal end states, right? It has, it has a strategic intent and doctrine is the way to, to actually execute that strategy. And so the hope with Battle Lab is to try and pull this agile development methodology into the doctrinal process in a joint, natively joint way 
in a more significant fashion so that not just the need from a specific user community, but actually the con-ops that user community exists in are both subject to this kind of mission resilience principle, right? Intense feedback, self-learning, speedy adaptation and iteration to create that flexibility. I think the hope in the long term, and this is an experimental process here, so we're curious to see if we could get it implemented where it goes, but the hope in the long term is that Battle Lab is a complement to some of the existing transformation organizations as a source of guidance or insight on how to adapt existing programs and how to overcome some of the limitations of, of new acquisition. One of the things that's really striking about the Century Series as an example is it's looking to take best of breed technologies from existing pots of commercial development and adapt those into something that works, not necessarily to, to do a sort of ground up rebuild and reconceptualization of uh, what a modern fighter aircraft combat aircraft should look like. This, I think, is a similar space to say, you know, hey, if we have an aging tanker asset and we could string it up with some relatively cheap phased array radars, could we turn that into something else? You saw some really interesting work on this with light general aviation aircraft in the 2010s and 20s around creating these effective, long-legged electronic warfare and intelligence platforms, right? Small Cessnas and Gulf Streams, rather than scratch from the beginning, ground up ISR aircraft. That's the kind of adaptation where not only with civilian technologies and COTS, but actually with existing defense platforms, we could see some really interesting... Can somebody find a mission for the C-130 that takes this thing in, into the 2150s, the 2160s? I believe that it's out there. So Battle Lab is to try and take that from the sort of mid-grade officer perspective and say, okay, as we think about a changing concept of operations, where could we slot in aging aircraft with remaining service life, equipment from other domains and apply them in, in creative and interesting ways to solve the problem. And thus, hopefully, I think this is where it becomes most important, so I'll close with it, solve the problem of reducing or at least trying to reduce the number of overall programs that we need to acquire in a given year. If we can reuse something that exists and modify it, take a mature aircraft, take a mature ground vehicle, that is in many cases a better solution in terms of efficiency, speed of, of access to the technology and responsiveness to the threat than clean sheet designing a new platform. So I think that's, Battle Lab's trying to do a couple of different things, but hopefully it both limits the, the size of the pipe as well as bring some new ideas in at the top. Trey Herr, Simon Handler, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Great talking with you, Eric. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.